Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Here's your host, Bill Goodman. Founded in 1984 by a gift from John and Joan Gaines, the Gaines Center for the Humanities functions as a laboratory for imaginative and innovative education on the University of Kentucky's campus. Devoted to cultivating an appreciation of the humanities in its students and faculty, the center embraces varied paths of knowledge and particularly strives to integrate creative work with traditional academic learning. The Gaines Center for the Humanities is located near the Kentucky Humanities office on Maxwell Street, three historic buildings between UK and downtown Lexington, and the center, uh, according to their website, also is designed to provide a link, intellectual as well as geographic, between the campus and town communities. And we're fortunate to learn uh, more about the Gaines Center today. I will tell you that uh, Dr. Melinda Price is the director of the Gaines Center, but Dr. Chelsea Breslin is the associate director, and Dr. Breslin is taking a few minutes to uh, come over next door and, and talk with us uh, not only about the Gaines Center, but uh, about a special event coming up on October the 2nd, which we will get to in just a moment. So, uh, Dr. Breslin, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. So, tell us a little bit more about the Gaines Center and uh, your work there, your work individually, and maybe your work uh, as a member of of the teaching faculty and um, uh, the the, uh, the richness of, uh, of what goes on in those three buildings. Yeah, so you did a great job summarizing in your introduction. Um, and I should have a small disclaimer. I actually just started in the Gaines Center in September. Um, and our director, um, Dr. Price, who comes to us, she's a faculty at the law school. She just started the 1st of January. So I think in terms of uh, the direction we're heading, we're still actually trying to think through that and um, sort of rethink our mission, values, goals, make sure that everybody um, is on the same page about that and sort of thinking through what foot forward the Gaines Center wants to, um, you know, to put. So, but overall, I mean, I think our goal really is to, like you said, create a link between the Lexington and, you know, the greater Kentucky community and campus through um, really innovative humanities initiatives and sort of going, you know, to maybe perhaps from a little C center to a big C center. Um, and I'm just really, really excited about the programming that we have. Um, one of the, the ways that the Gaines Center, one of the things we're most known for is our fellowship program, um, which is really unique across you know, the entire United States because we serve primarily undergraduates, um, which gives a really opportunity to reach some of the best and brightest when they're only sophomores and juniors and seniors. So we select every year 12 Gaines Fellows, and these students actually take a team-taught intensive seminar course both semesters of their junior year while simultaneously working on some sort of community engagement project, and that has sort of looked different every year. Um, and then when they roll into their senior year, they assemble a faculty committee, not unlike a master's you know, committee, and work on a thesis. And that thesis looks different depending on each student. We've had students write novellas. We've had students write sort of the traditional paper, humanities paper. Um, so it looks a little different for everybody, but really we're there as a resource to help those students 
really be able to think through a project that's near and dear to their heart and deliver um, something that's just, you know, sort of an excellent final product um, that they can then share. And oftentimes students then sort of piggyback on whatever they did, you know, for projects that they bring into law school or graduate programs or, you know, Fulbrights. We had a Rhodes Scholar last year. So this is, the, you know, the first Rhodes Scholar in 50 years was uh, a Gaines Fellow, mm-hmm. Hadil Abdallah. So I think that it's, we really serve, like I said, those 24 undergraduates. But in addition to that, we look at serving the entire campus and making sure that we are open to working with faculty across every discipline at UK. Um, well, we'll talk about uh, some of the other work um, that you do, the the, the seminars um, that will um, that you're bringing in a special speaker for, but you have other seminars too. But I'm just interested uh, because you have uh, you have taught uh, in the um, at, as a faculty member uh, a seminar, and I just want to ask you about that. This is your expertise, and and uh, this is what you you studied, and your scholarship is in, and. Uh, last uh, spring, uh, the the title of the seminar was Visual Literacy in the 21st Century, uh, and then for this fall, the Contemporary South. And you're involved as an Appalachian Studies a scholar in, in both of those areas. Tell me a little bit about how you used uh, and, and will use your scholarship in Appalachian Studies to uh, addr- address these two seminars. Absolutely. So the the timing has never been better, really, to talk about Appalachian Studies because there's sort of a, a renewed engagement following the publication of Hillbilly Elegy, which, depending on who you ask, is the greatest or the worst thing to happen <laughs> to Appalachia. Um, and so one of the things that I focus on when I teach is asking students to learn how to read visually, how to determine or process how Appalachians are represented in pop culture. So we usually start out by watching the movie Deliverance, which nowadays the students usually have not seen it, but they... What's their reaction to it? You know, they're... (laughs) They are pretty curious and also pretty shocked which really makes you think, right? Because this was 1972 that this movie came out and there's so much talk about this generation is so immune to shock value because look at all the things they're exposed to. Well, Mm -hmm. they're all pretty shocked when they watch Deliverance. Mm -hmm. Um, And even I, you know, when I show it in my class, there are times where I just want to turn away. I mean, Mm -hmm. it's so intense. And you think about audiences seeing this in 1972, my colleague was just talking about this the other day. I, Deliverance is. I also teach for the Honors College at UK, and Deliverance is on the syllabus for next week. And she was saying, "Oh my gosh, I saw that in theaters when it came out." And my friend who was with me threw up in the theater. <laughs> so you think I about. Can see, yeah. <laughs> I can see how that would happen. I mean, right. that's something that. Uh, yeah, that. That's almost one of those uh, movies that one sees early and then uh, over the decades sees again. But yeah, it, it never loses its shock value. So they, so they watch that. They watch that yeah. and we talk about, you know, so you can talk about the film. Again, we don't, we, I try to shift the conversation away from is this a good movie or a bad movie? You know, I think that's a very surface level conversation. Mm-hmm. And instead, I try to use language like, Think about, is this a responsible representation of the Appalachian people? 
And that's a very different question. Um, so I ask them, what did you learn about the Appalachian people? If you had no exposure to Appalachia before seeing this film, which a, this is the case for a lot of audiences that saw it, what would you walk away thinking about Appalachians? You know, they were represented animalistic, primitive, um, horribly evil, but with no justification. You're given no background into these characters. All you know is they attack these urbanites who dared venture into their area. Um, so we talk about deliverance. We talk about Lil Abner. We talk about the real McCoys and the Beverly Hillbillies and then bring it all the way into modern contemporary shows like Justified um, and think about, you know, again, not good or bad. No one's saying was deliverance a good movie or a bad movie. I mean, based on all the awards and accolades it got, it was a very mm -hmm. well-delivered film. But mm -hmm. what are the repercussions for mm -hmm. the people who are represented? Mm -hmm. And one of the other things, I, I, you know a lot more about this than I do, and that is that the, uh, the, the, the National Appalachian uh, Studies uh, Conference is coming to UK next year, uh, next March, yeah. I think it is. And 2020, yes. Th uh, although there's a, uh, uh, the theme is not uh, Hillbilly Elegy, uh, I'm sure that uh, there's always a discussion about uh, or there will be forever uh, about uh, the, the impact of that book, and then and then a couple of other books that we've chatted about before that uh, authors uh, who who sort of answered Hillbilly Elegy, and I, it it's still in some ways being answered um, almost weekly. Uh, the the um, uh, the Appalachian program that WEKU airs out of uh, Charleston, West Virginia, um, most of the time in their one hour. Uh, we'll focus on some aspect that, that makes you think about hillbilly elegy and deliverance and everything else. Mm -hmm. yeah. Absolutely. Actually, WVU Press came out with a book last year called Appalachian Reckoning, mm -hmm. which had you know some of my favorite scholars and writers um, had contributions to that. But I would highly recommend picking mm -hmm. that up if you are someone who is even the least bit curious about the reaction from Appalachia to Hillbilly Elegy. And they, I think, you know, there was some criticism about including positive feedback about Hillbilly Elegy, but actually I really think that was the right thing to do to include both, you know, scholars who felt it was really irresponsible and detrimental. And then there were some people who didn't feel that way, who felt it was a really positive contribution to sort of this dialogue around Appalachian identity. Um, and so their contributions, Elizabeth Catt and Dwight Billings, um, I just really encourage anybody who's interested in this conversation to pick that up. It's a really great text. Um, and I was so happy WU Press put that out. And then uh, Elizabeth Catt came out with a, a smaller book, which was great in response to Hillbilly Elegy. It was sort of the first published reaction. Um, and it's called What You're Getting Wrong About Appalachia, which was really helpful because oftentimes when Appalachian scholars like myself and people would ask, okay, so if hillbilly elegy isn't the right thing, then what is? What mm -hmm. should I read? Mm -hmm. And everyone was referring back to, you know, Ron Eller's Uneven Ground, mm -hmm. which was published, you know, <laughs> in the world of books a long time yeah, ago. A long time ago. And sure. so I'm so happy now. We, I do, mm -hmm. you know, we do have um, sort of reactions we can refer people to, and and cats. What you're getting wrong about Appalachia and then Appalachian reckoning are two great examples. Um, so yeah. Well, we could spend the rest of our time, and, <laughs> which we don't have talking about that because I, I still it, it's so fascinating, and it's uh, um, there are 
references to it almost every day. Uh, you, the uh, coal miners are still uh, protesting. Uh, uh, whether or not they're still, as we record this, we, we don't know. But, you know, there's just so much uh, going on. Uh, I noticed uh, that uh, there are just stories almost every day that, that uh, make you think about and sort of challenge your thinking about uh, stereotypically what, what that is. And uh, so, you know, mm-hmm. it, we, we'll have to have a do another program. That's about that. right. <laughs> back to the Gaines Center. Um, and just very quickly, uh, the uh, you just returned uh, from China and uh, a trip with... Uh, uh, some of your students. Uh, so just re- re- real quickly on that and, and, and how that is a, a part of what you're doing. Absolutely. So the Gaines Center, like I said, in addition to sort of serving faculty and community members and all these different stakeholders across um, Lexington, we also, like I said, focus on these fellows. And so one of the things that um, our predecessor, Phil Harling, did was create this relationship between Um, the UK Confucius Institute and the Gaines Center for Humanities. And uh, what we do is every summer we take the Gaines Fellows to China and we explore Beijing, Xi'an, and Shanghai. And so this year I had the privilege of accompanying the Gaines Fellows on that program. And um, they were actually taking an academic course this year, Chinese history through art, taught by um, Dr. Wajing Maskey, which is, you know, her, her field, her specialization. And it was incredible to see. I mean, you know, we've had students... I think there's a misconception perhaps that high achieving students also are contributing or recipients of this hoarding of privilege, right? That they, that because they're high achieving students, they must have had private tutors and private high schools. And I think the Gaines Center does a, I mean, in, in the fellows that we select, you really see this just isn't the case. And a lot of the students who go on this program to China have never even been on a plane before. I mean, can you even imagine your first plane ride being from Detroit to Beijing? Mm. It's just, it was so, it was such a privilege to watch Mm -hmm. them interact with this new environment. And I always joke, I'm, I'm only 29, but I'm so very already in that adult space of liking my creature comforts (laughs) and wanting to, you know, um, get back to my emails and all this. And, And this is one of the reasons I love working with college students because I watch them simply just by saying yes to everything, really authentically mm-hmm. engage with their environment. Mm-hmm. They're so intellectually curious. They're so adventurous. They have so much energy. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know where they get all this energy. I guess I had it when I was in college, but I don't remember it quite <laughs> that way. Um, yeah. But even in the Great Wall, I mean, they walked up stairs and hills, mm-hmm. and I mean, I just couldn't yeah. even believe it. So. It was just a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, and it's a partnership that we hope we can continue. We're so grateful to the Confucius Institute um, for allowing us to, to do that. It's just been fantastic. Well, that's wonderful, and I'm sure that, uh, that you and Dr. Price are uh, in the process of, of molding uh, the, the future for the Gaines Center. Uh, one of those things that uh, you're continuing to carry on uh, at the Gaines Center are, are the seminars, and one of those is the Bale Boone Symposium, which has been going on for a number of years, and you can tell us how many in just a minute. But on October 2nd of this fall, uh, the Gaines Center is uh, bringing to uh, Lexington and to the university uh, author Thierry Jones, uh, who's uh, the author of four novels, uh, An American Marriage, uh, published in 2018, is her latest novel, and uh, that was, uh, she was an Oprah book club choice, which uh, can't be bad for any uh, writer. Uh, so tell us uh, 
Uh, Chelsea, if you would, what you know about Professor Jones and her writing and, and what you expect and uh, the book itself, which is being used as uh, somewhat of a, even though it's a novel, it's fiction, but uh, somewhat of a, of a textbook for some of the classes. Absolutely. So, you know, to sort of start the conversation, I feel like I need to rewind a little bit um, back to, you know, the first month I started. Mm -hmm. So I started with last year's Bailbone Symposium. It was my first day, if you can imagine. And we were bringing in John Meacham, uh -huh. who is, you know, as I'm sure there's a podcast about him too, celebrated <laughs> uh, historical sure. writer. And he had just a really great message. Um, but one of the things I noticed, again, this was my first day, as I was sort of gazing out to the Warsham Theater, I thought, where are all the students? You know, they, there weren't any students there. And so that was something when I was thinking, you know, now I'm in the, the driver's seat, so to speak, and I have to think about next year's Bailboon Symposium. Um, who is an author that will appeal to community members, faculty members, staff and students, you know, because all of these stakeholders, like I said, are equally important to the center. So I always uh, have my eye on the National Book Award, short and long list. And so I first saw an American marriage featured there, you know, it was on the long list for, um, for that award. And so after reading it, I thought, okay, this is it, mm -hmm. you know, this is it. This is such a compelling novel. And I'm someone who, again, my PhD is in English. Mm -hmm. I believe so strongly in the power of fiction. And I think that we are too often afraid to explore fiction in a meaningful way. I think it's easier often, or perceived to be easier to, you know, um, look at nonfiction or memoir, which are powerful and compelling, obviously. But again, there's something about fiction that I feel just so fiercely, you know, defensive mm -hmm. of, and I feel like it's so important. So I really wanted whoever we featured to be an, a writer, a creative writer. So after, you know, I read it and we and decided and we talked to um, Professor Jones's, you know, people and, yeah. and, and got the ball rolling, I thought, okay, how can I take it a step further? How can we in the Gaines Center take it a step further? And so I called uh, my colleague, the Director of Academic Affairs in the Lewis Honors College. And I was an honor student at UK when I was here, um, way back when. And I said, are you guys doing a common reading? And she said, it's funny you bring that up. We want to, but we don't, we don't have a book yet. And I said, you should really think about mm. an American marriage. Mm -hmm. And so she read it, her dean read it, and then they decided, yes, we're going we're gonna to make it. So we have 900 incoming Lewis Honors students who have all read mm. Tiari's beautiful story. Um, that she created, and they're all going to be there and be able to meet her. So it was just this really great, you know, collaborative um, effort. And now I can't believe that it's only, you know, going to be basically in a month. Yeah. Um, but yeah. we're thrilled. We're going to fill the Singletary Center uh -huh. for the Arts. And I, again, I think her story has so many different points of entry. Um, both for students, for, for community readers, for faculty. I just think that there's so much to talk about. Again, the, uh, the date is October 2nd, and you're asking people to go on your website and uh, at least register. It's a free event, but you'd like to know how many people are coming. That's right. Uh, That's right. Sure. Yes, it's one of those weird where you get a... 
you have to go buy yeah. a ticket in quotes, but it's actually free. But okay. we want to make sure we have a seat for everybody. So we have an Eventbrite page and, and want people to register for that. Yeah, absolutely. Had you read uh, her other novels before you read uh, An American Marriage? I had not. And have you gone back to do that with all the other work and reading and, <laughs> that you have to do? I'm just curious about whether this this novel is um, is something that, that the other three led up to, or is the writing much, much improved in the fourth novel than it was in the, I mean, I'm just, 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 uh, uh, and she's been writing for some time. She's, by the way, um, did, did we give her credentials? She is uh, at uh, Emory. She is, But yep. she's been on a, uh, a, a, not a sabbatical, but she's been a visiting pro- professor too, uh, pro- probably at many places. Mm-hmm. She's, yeah, she's new at Emory. So um, I think probably last year she started there as a professor of creative writing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Silver Sparrow um, received a lot of positive attention. Um, I haven't had a chance to read her other novels. Mm-hmm. It's they're in the queue. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you understand too. The, oh sure. The never ending, ever expanding queue. Um, but from everything I understand, I mean, she's always been an incredibly strong writer and an incredibly strong storyteller. And uh, an American Marriage is yeah. no exception. I think it's probably more the content, you know, the mm-hmm. the particular story she was telling that mm-hmm. obviously resonated with so many different types of people across the United States and abroad. Uh, Oprah Winfrey said uh, it's among uh, Tayeri's many gifts that she can touch us soul to soul with her words. Only Oprah could say it like that. (laughs) And then another uh, sort of uh, well-known person who makes up a reading list now and uh, a music list, a reading list, another list. His name is Obama. Yeah. Yeah. Barack Obama. Um, the former president said a moving portrayal of all the effects of a wrongful conviction on a young African-American couple. And without revealing too much, but giving people who haven't read it and want to read it um, quickly before she appears at the Singletary Center, that, that, that is really at the heart, uh, is it not, of the novel, wrongful con- conviction of a young African-American couple. And I like the way that President Obama not only said, he didn't say the wrong, wrongful conviction of a whatever, man or woman, he said of a, of a couple. That's right. Because really that's at the heart of her novel, right? It's one of the things that I love about this novel is that it's not a courtroom drama. You don't see um, the case against Roy play out in a courtroom. And I think that's a real departure from other books that sort of tackle this issue. But I think the whole point is this plays out in so many ways that are absent from how we as a public talk about wrongful incarceration. So she really takes on issues with memory, identity, family, marriage. Again, it's right there in the title. Um, And how the ripples of something like this are felt so strongly throughout all of those communities and all of those relationships. Um, and I think that's why, you know, like Oprah said, it touches you soul to soul because it, it appeals to you not as a armchair detective or, you know, what have you. It appeals to you as a human being, you know, how it, it causes you to ask those questions of how would I handle this? How would I move forward with my life? How do you continue to function 
when something so horribly unfair and wrong has affected your life in this way. Um, and the, just the emotional impact. I mean, it, it's, it packs a punch. It's just, and it's delivered so beautifully at the same time. Tell us about uh, the protagonist. Um, uh, there are really more than one, but, but tell us uh, your thoughts about Celestial. Yeah, so there are three really protagonists, right? So you have Celestial, who is the the spouse of Roy, Roy's partner, um, and then you have uh, Andre, who is friends with Celestial. Um, so you sort of get this all three of their perspectives throughout the the novel. But she is someone who is an incredibly strong um, woman who's sort of forced <laughs> to navigate this. And one of the things that's one and again, it's. I hesitate because I don't want to give anything mm-hmm. away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too good to. to do <laughs> it that. is. It's really yeah. hard not to do that. But you know, they. Um, I think you see them right at the beginning of what they feel like is starting their life. Right? They there's this whole debate of it. How can we be cosmopolitan? And the first even the first chapter talks about that. You know, we're we're going to be young professionals. This idea of striving for um, success in America, you know, an American marriage in the South and occupying the space in Atlanta and and really coming into your own. And then everything is just flipped Mm. for them. And you see Celestial deal with that and and Roy deal with that. And and like I said, the way that Professor Jones writes about it is just, yeah, it's intense. you, so you felt like that that uh, as I do the 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 portrayal of Roy in uh, in prison in when he was incarcerated was true to the way someone would uh, sort of internalize all of those feelings and, and 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 all of that hate. How did you see him change throughout the novel? Well, I think. You see, one of the surprising things is you see sort of this, he never stops fighting. You know, he never concedes guilt for something that he didn't do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you see him sort of not resign himself to this idea, but he's forced to make a life for himself mm-hmm. while incarcerated. Which again, as a reader who's sort of outside that experience, you find, for me, I found it incredibly difficult Mm -hmm. to swallow because you just but no he shouldn't be getting used to being in prison he shouldn't be getting used to only Mm -hmm. writing you know to his wife because this is so unfair he didn't do it you know you just want to like scream at these people but that is exactly what she's evoking in you as a reader is just how unbelievably unfair it is and how much he has to come to terms with Mm -hmm. to even survive day to day how much Mm -hmm. he has to um resign himself to the fact that yes i was accused of something it wasn't fair but here i am now this is my life and how do i move forward um and so i think you see him you know sort of it's not that he resigns himself to the fact that he's incarcerated but he figures out how to survive Mm -hmm. how to move forward in the best way that he is given the circumstances that he's under and you see the same thing with celestial so it's not like you're just watching this happen with Roy, but she has to re-envision her entire life. How do I move forward without him here with me? Mm-hmm. And 
how do I function day to day with this anger that I have knowing, you know, and that's why it's the, it's the incarceration of a couple because she was with Roy, you know, when the yeah. alleged crime was being committed. So mm-hmm. she knows for a fact too that, that he's not the responsible mm-hmm. party, that he didn't do this. And so she's too trying to wrangle with this anger and this just injustice, this miscarriage of justice. And so you just watching how they have mm-hmm. to adapt and survive and move forward. And it's, you realize your own privilege in reading it and that, you know, oh my gosh, can you imagine if you were ever asked to do that? I don't, you know, how would you move forward? The um, the novel continues the writing. I, I, would you call this, uh, other than uh, the incarceration system in this country being so terribly uh, broken and really the society not discovering that until the last 20 or 25 years or so, or maybe even less time than that with the Southern Poverty Law Center and, and mm-hmm. others who are working, uh, many others who are working in this field to to uh, to, to do work that, I mean, there was just a, a, an example yesterday in the national news. Um, a young um, man uh, stole... Uh, just a few cents worth of something in, in, a, in a cash register or something and, and got uh, life without parole because it was the third offense and mm-hmm. all of this business and, and they were just now... But anyway, besides that being the theme of one of the themes of this novel, is there another message in there about marriage and relationships and... and uh, prejudice and uh, are, are there other things going on? Yeah, well, I want to respond just quickly to your first point about, you know, the the justice system in general. And, you know, I just listened to a podcast, um, I guess, last week I finished it up and it was about the case of Curtis Flowers, which, of course, the Supreme Court just ruled, mm-hmm. you know, they vacated his conviction. But this this person has been put on trial, I think now six times, and the the DA is trying to decide if they want to pursue a seventh case against him. Um, and one of the reasons that his conviction was vacated is because they learned that the way that he was, he was striking black jurors um, consistently, when actually Curtis Flowers is from um, an area where, you know, a high percentage of the population is black and that was never represented in his jury. So I think he had a handful of black jurors over the course of six trials. I mean, it was just so bl- mm-hmm. glaringly mm-hmm. obvious. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, to respond, I actually don't know if we're just now discovering that our, you know, justice mm-hmm. system is prejudiced um, and in a lot of cases just blatantly racist. I think probably... People have known that for a long time, but I think with um, the increase in social media, the increase of advocates having more of a platform to push back against it, that's why we're hearing more about it. And thank goodness, but for every Curtis Flowers where there's a podcast about it, there's 10, 15, 20 other inmates who don't, you know, haven't been given that publicity yet or the resources yet and are still there. So the, the, Unfortunately, the pro- it will never be over because the sad thing is it's not correcting something that's been happening and has stopped. It's still happening. Mm-hmm. Um, so that very much, I mean, that's a yeah. theme that I'm I'm glad that her book is 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 causing people to discuss that, and and um, I think that's mm-hmm. really important. 
And yeah, the other thing, I mean, there's a reason that it's, you know, the title is an American marriage. You know, you don't, uh, there's nothing in the title about wrongful convictions or anything like that. I think it's talking about, you know, one of the things that there's a scene early on, um, and it's early enough in the book that I, I don't think it's ruining anything, but where Roy and Celestial are in their hotel room and she's wearing a sort of white satin nightgown. And that it's at that point that they're that they both are arrested, and she's she and Roy are thrown on the ground, and she has this satin, you know, pure mm-hmm. white satin outfit that's you know thrown on the ground, mm-hmm. and she's handcuffed. And that image is one that has stayed with me months mm-hmm. and months after I finished reading the the novel because it's so symbolic of this innocence, not only of their new marriage where there was so much hopefulness mm-hmm. and so much ambition mm-hmm. and this dream of, mm-hmm. of this sort of perfect life that they were going to lead together but also of you know they were that was the trial there was no reason to to include the trial because that effectively was them being found guilty that moment mm-hmm. of her being thrown and her white outfit mm-hmm. being ruined by this sort of authority that came mm-hmm. in in that way um but i think it's also representative like i said of a marriage i think Everybody has this idea, maybe, you know, newlyweds, <laughs> the the white, you know, the white sure. dress and her white outfit, you know, the a marriage is going to be this thing. And I think always you have this idea of what marriage is going to look like and what it's going to be. And then once you get into it and, you know, I've, I've been with my partner for 10 years. I, you've been with your wife for a lot longer, I know, but you get into it and you realize it's so much of the day to day um, and things shift and change so dramatically and you don't even know what's happening sometimes. And so I think that too, mm-hmm. in realizing what you have to overcome together really at the end of the day, sometimes how strong individually you can be, but how fragile mm-hmm. a relationship is. Um, so I think that is too mm-hmm. a theme in there of how do you continue, you know, how do you continue living as partners when individually you're both changing and then you have external circumstances that sometimes throw unforeseen and incredibly difficult challenges your way? How do you remain mm-hmm. a, a partnership? Well, that's so beautifully said uh, about uh, all of it, uh, about what this novel is about. Again, the, the author, Thierry Jones, An American Marriage, uh, will be at the Singletary on October 2nd. And uh, on the website, uh, and there is an, uh, just a registration. It is a free event. And Dr. Chelsea Breslin has been our guest on the Think Humanities podcast, and we appreciate your information. And uh, maybe when uh, we, you decide to have somebody else in, and uh, we'll have you back to talk about that too. That sounds great. We hope to see everyone on, on October 2nd at 7 p.m. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities, where we have been telling Kentucky's stories for 47 years. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. Join us next week for a new episode of Think Humanities.